Age to Practice, applying educational reading in the classroom. Join in the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. This episode of From Page to Practice is a Charter College of Teaching Impact Journal special where I am joined by college members, fellows and chartered teachers to discuss the contents of the latest issue. If you enjoy the discussion and want to get a hold of your own copy of Impact, visit chartered.college and join as a member. Hi and welcome to the second Impact Journal special of From Page to Practice. This episode is all about the eighth issue of the Impact Journal with the theme of cognition and learning. Today I'm really pleased to be able to bring to you a wide range of contributions including Kat Scott from the Chartered College talking about what she hopes teachers will gain from this issue. Author of the editorial and Ofsted Deputy Director for Research and Evaluation Daniel Mers giving an overview of the key theme. Four article authors talking about their articles and three readers of the journal describing their key takeaways. This is bound to be another bumper-length episode, so without further ado, we'll hear from Kat Scott. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Chartered College and we'll support you to deliver CPD for you and your colleagues, improve teaching and learning and student outcomes, and reduce workload by engaging with the latest research of what works and why. Hi, I'm Kat Scott. I'm Director of Education and Research at the Chartered College of Teaching. Our latest issue of Impact, which is our termly peer-reviewed journal, is all about the theme of cognition and learning. We try to make every issue themed because it helps us to bring together um, a whole range of different views around key topics and it helps us to bring lots of different articles in. It's been about two years since we last published an issue around the science of learning. We do come back round to themes because, of course, over time there's more research taking place, but also critically more understanding of how key ideas from research can be implemented and what the implications for those in the classroom are, what the challenges might be in implementing those. And we felt we found that we had quite different kinds of articles coming into this issue. There was a lot more around teacher practice this issue than the issue we had two years ago, which is really great to see. One of the interesting examples is that there's been a big focus on retrieval practice over the last few years, and certainly we've had a number of articles about that in different issues of impact. Um, And certainly in this issue as well, there are articles talking about how retrieval practice can be of value, the impact that it's had, how, how schools are using it as an approach to strengthen what's going on in the classroom but I think we're also beginning to understand more about the challenges in introducing ideas like this um, how actually lab-based uh, impl- uh, sort of things that have happened in the lab don't necessarily transfer really easily into the classroom and there's a brilliant article in this issue by uh, the EEF's Rob Coe talking about some of the challenges in uh, in bringing ideas from cognitive science and bringing ideas like retrieval practice into the classroom. Like Every issue, we've got a range of articles from different settings, um, from different subjects and different phases. Of course, they're likely to be particularly interesting to people working in those settings. But we also hope that they can provide insight for other subjects, other phases, other settings as well, um, helping people to think about practice in their own setting, but also reflecting on what might be happening elsewhere. One of the key things that 
we want to do with impact, of course, is to connect research and practice. So from that side, we do hope that the articles will have a practical application. It's really interesting to see things like the article in this issue about promoting metacognition in the early years, which actually um, is all about piloting an approach that is based on some research from Helen Lewis in a previous issue of Impact. Uh, it's great to kind of start to see how things that are, have appeared in Impact are being used, being trialled, being built on uh, in other settings. And that's, again, building the sort of knowledge base we have about what might work in the classroom. But whilst I say that obviously we want the articles to have a practical application, I think it's important to be clear we don't see them as providing any kind of a recipe or a silver bullet telling teachers what they uh, what they need to do and sort of solving all of the problems. It's more about extending teachers' repertoire, about extending their understanding of what might work in their setting, understanding the reasons that things that already are working might work. And I think this idea that it's not telling teachers what to do, it's not providing all the answers is really key. We know that there's a huge amount that we don't yet know. And there are also widely differing views in the sector. One of the um, interesting elements of this issue is all about the theme of metacognition. There are a number of articles on that. And I think it's interesting that, for example, Daniel Merz's uh, editorial has a different view and definition of what metacognition is from James Mannion's article later on in the issue. I think that's an important thing and that actually the sort of debate that these things are sparking on social media and beyond is really what we want to see, this critical engagement with research, giving teachers the chance to debate, think, reflect, share their own practice and connect that in a range of different ways with different viewpoints, different research and really start to build what they're able to do and build our collective understanding as a profession uh, and our confidence in what we're doing. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Chartered College and we'll connect you with the experts through our research, CPD we offer, networks, webinars and events, and our brilliant CPD packs, which are ready to go staff training sessions. A really useful intro there from Kat about the ways that teachers can benefit from reading the Impact Journal. Next up, I'm so pleased to be able to bring you a contribution from the author of the editorial. I contacted Daniel on the off chance that he might be happy to contribute just a few minutes this episode to talk about his editorial. Daniel has actually provided us with much, much more than this, so I'll leave him to speak for himself. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. I'm going to talk today about metacognition and self-regulated learning, and I'm going to do that in the context of the growth of an evidence-based approach in education. I think uh, we live in really exciting times for educational research. We've seen a real growth in interest in evidence-based approaches, in part through bottom-up organisations like Research Ed, in part through organisations mediating educational research and bringing it to practice like uh, the Chartered College of Teaching. And we've seen uh, a growth of really interesting research from the learning sciences, for example, which has been turned into applicable classroom practice and activities. Uh, think, for example, of all the work on cognitive load theory, which has been obviously really influential recently. Now, this growth in evidence-based practice is a really great thing and a really exciting thing, but there's always a bit of a danger that we can uh, misinterpret things, that we can uh, turn things into the latest 
fad and bastardize it and that's really uh, something we need to try and avoid. What we don't want is a new learning styles in education. Now, um, metacognition and self-regulation kind of illustrate these points rather well. First, it's worth saying that there really is a lot of research on uh, metacognition and self-regulation, and there's a lot of evidence that using Metacognitive strategies can help pupils learn more effectively and efficiently. We know that uh, improved self-regulation has a positive impact on attainment, but we also have seen quite a lot of unhelpful and unuseful use of the terms metacognition. For example, we've seen it turn into kind of really generic learning-to-learn approaches, which we found to be really quite ineffective. So we need to look at what the evidence is really telling us. Firstly, there is a lot of evidence. So uh, a couple of years ago, I did a piece of work with my colleague uh, Christian Bockover from the University of Southampton, where we um, reviewed the evidence on metacognition and self-regulated learning for the Education Endowment Foundation. And we found around 1,500 different articles just published in the last 10 years. So that's kind of the level of stuff that's out there. Of course, they're not all of the best quality. There's a big difference in that, but there is actually a lot of um, high-quality research there that we could draw on. Um, but what we saw in that review is that actually there were quite a lot of different definitions of uh, self-regulation and metacognition. So we first need to kind of think about what those terms actually mean. And for us, self-regulation is about the extent to which learners are aware of their strengths and weaknesses, the strategies they use to learn, whether and how they can motivate themselves to engage in learning, and whether and how they can develop strategies and tactics to enhance learning. Self-regulation is broader than metacognition because it kind of consists of three areas of psychological functioning, um, cognition, metacognition and motivation. Cognition refers to information processing strategies that learners use when doing a particular task like paying attention or practicing. Metacognition then refers to the strategies we use to control and regulate cognition, and I'll talk a bit more about that in a moment. And motivation includes all the motivational beliefs we have about ourselves, for example, our self-efficacy or our interest in a particular task. Um, so, metacognition specifically is about the ways learners can monitor and purposely direct their learning. So you can think about what strategies I want to use for a particular task. And we have three components to that. Planning, monitoring and evaluation. We start off with planning. That's about setting goals, that's about activating relevant prior knowledge. What do I know about this task that I'm trying to embark on? That's about selecting appropriate strategies, that's about allocating resources, not least time. Think about um, revising for an exam. I've got to think about how much time I'm going to need to revise for this exam. What are my best strategies for learning the content I need to learn? So for example, um, how do I revise? All those kind of things are things we need to think about in the planning. Monitoring is then about looking at how well the task is going while we are doing it. So it's things like self-testing, it's things like retrieval practice, it's what we are doing during the learning to control 
our learning and then evaluation comes at the end and is kind of looking at how well has it gone. Um, have we actually learned what we wanted to learn? Have we reached the outcomes that we wanted to reach? And how efficiently has that happened? And the idea is there, of course, that we um, evaluate and that we then decide, okay, was did that work well? We do it again. Did it not work well? We need to revise our strategy. So it's thinking about how we engage in the learning activity. These um, are all things that learners possess themselves to a certain extent, but never enough and never and also not to the same extent. So as teachers, we have an important task in developing those kind of uh, um, strategies. And we need to make sure that we use the right ways of doing that. Um, the origins of self-regulation metacognition happen early in life, you can see that already in early years, but we need as teachers to help develop those skills in youngsters, in children as they grow. And that entails a number of different strategies. First there is the importance of explicit teaching. So we know that we need often to explicitly teach learning strategies to pupils because Often we have misconceptions about the ways that we learn, what the most effective strategies are. So, um, for example, highlighting is a very popular strategy amongst learners, but it's not really all that effective. It's much better to do self-testing or retrieval practice or things like that. Uh, but we don't know that if we are not taught that, and we don't know how to do it effectively if we are not taught that. So explicit teaching is about um, teaching people strategies, but also teaching people about how they actually monitor, how they actually evaluate while they are doing a particular task. Explicit instruction in itself is not enough, however. It's important that we apply, that we practice and that we model. So the second element to developing metacognition is modelling. So we as teachers need to model our own thinking, how we ourselves learn as we teach. And um, that's something that we can see a lot of teachers do really, really well. Final part is, of course, we need to practice and we need to embed. So we need to make sure that we follow up on the explicit instruction, on the modeling with more um, guided uh, inquiry tasks where we get students to actually practice what they have learned and develop that and embed that. Important to say here that um, this, there is this misconception that these are kind of generic things, but we actually know that they are quite strongly linked to subject knowledge. S subjects are not all the same in terms of the strategies we use to learn. You learn things differently, use different strategies in science from history, for example. So we need to embed that in the subject. And we also know that we don't necessarily easily transfer from one domain to the other. So again, we need to make sure that in the different subjects, we look at what the specific learning strategies are and we teach them through our subject teaching. So those are just a very brief whistle-stop set of ideas around metacognition and self-regulated learning. There's, of course, a lot more um, out there and um, in the other articles in the IMPACT um, journal that uh, we are talking about today, you can see some more ideas about that. But the main thing to remember here is that um, metacognition 
does have a number of established ways that we can develop it, and it is not a panacea. It is not the thing that is suddenly going to make everything great in education. There are no silver bullets, and metacognition is that no more than any of the other useful strategies we can use. It is one part of the effective teacher's toolbox. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Charter College and help us celebrate the profession to build value and trust amongst the education community and share your voice to shape your profession. A really interesting overview from Daniel there with lots of food for thought. As he says at the end, there are lots more ideas that we'll discuss in this episode, so let's continue. Next, we're going to hear from Ben Stevenson about audio feedback. Hi, my name's Ben Stevenson. I'm director of sixth form at Queen Ad School, Caversham, and I'm co-author of the recent article using audio recordings to deliver feedback that resonates with students. Um, the purpose of this article was to share work that we, the psychology department were doing at Queen Anne School last year. What we wanted to do was uh, look at ways to help manage teacher workload in particular, uh, marking psychology being a big essay subject. I'm sure a lot of teachers can relate to that sort of feeling of a never-ending cycle of marking, giving feedback to the students, and then you've got another essay to mark. Um, so what we wanted to look at was to see whether giving audio feedback as an alternative mode of delivering feedback to our A-level students would would be beneficial. All of our sort of students use OneNote now in the classroom area where they can submit their homework and OneNote gives us the sort of facilities to be able to record audio feedback. Um, each student has their own individual sort of page on OneNote so we were able to record the feedback um, on the same page next to their piece of work. What we then did was sort of let the students sort of listen to that feedback and provide them a structure for how they would respond to it. So actually the students themselves would be the ones writing down the feedback that we were given them. We, we wanted to look at audio feedback for a number of reasons. Um, in particular, we thought that this would potentially be a less threatening way um, and help improve student self-esteem, the fact that they could listen to intonation. Sometimes you write things down about something being incorrect and students can see that quite in a threatening way. So by able to listen to our voice in here, we thought it might be sort of reassuring. Secondly, um, and one of my biggest frustrations that I've had throughout my time as a teacher is when you write loads and loads of feedback for the student and they then actually respond with very little themselves. So what we were doing by giving audio feedback and getting the students to write it down was that it would, would encourage greater self-reflection and we thought this was going to be really beneficial in terms of the students overall development as well because what we would do is after they'd had time to listen to the feedback we could check and see had they written down um, your standard what have they done well what did they need to improve upon and a certain task that we may have set them to do in terms of restructuring a certain paragraph or adding to certain points so what we did at the end of this year is that we gave all of our students a questionnaire in year 12 to see how they, they found the feedback. We, we asked our psychology teachers how they found it and how did we find using it ourselves. And then um, we also looked at how well the students had done and how progress they'd made. So with regard to the teacher feedback, uh, it was overwhelmingly positive. The workload decreased in terms of the time spent having to write feedback compared to audio feedback. Um, and also the quality of the reflections of the students and the improvement to the essays they were making. All of us teachers felt like the audio feedback was much more valuable than previous written feedback. 
our head of department, Dr. Amy Fancourt, also uh, tracked the progress of the students throughout the year in comparison with the last few years and found that the 2018-19 cohort had a much higher value added than previous cohorts. So there are obviously numerous reasons why this might be, but we all strongly believe that the use of audio feedback has contributed to this development and helping sort of the metacognition skills of the students develop in terms of their their reflections. Um, students are no longer just looking at their grade and then putting the essay away. They're listening to all the feedback we're giving and really thinking about how they need to respond to it for their, their next approach. Um, so this is a, a trial that we're continuing this year with our, our cohorts as well. Um, we're big fans in the department of using audio feedback. And moving forward, what we're doing now with our year 13s is that we're actually giving them a choice and asking them, how do you want your feedback? Because some students do prefer the written feedback. And that's absolutely fine. Uh, overwhelming majority of them do prefer the audio feedback and feel like they are getting more out of it. But again, we're getting the students to take more ownership in terms of their learning and their sort of development. One other tip I'd just give for um, potentially newer teachers is that everything that I mark is done in time conditions. When I first started teaching, we would do a lot of this, um, setting essays for homework, and I was getting brilliant essays, but the students were spending three hours writing them. So for this audio feedback to be most valuable in terms of saving teachers time, we only use it for timed assessments. So that's our overview of um, the impact of using audio feedback. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thanks, Ben. I found that really interesting as we have OneNote in school, but I don't feel like we use it to its full benefit. This sounds really useful and I'll be taking a look. I think in MFL this could have lots of potential. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Charter College and we'll support you to deliver CPD for you and your colleagues, improve teaching and learning and student outcomes, and reduce workload by engaging with the latest research of what works and why. Today's next contribution comes from Trisha Taylor. She's provided a fantastic contribution which only goes to show how knowledgeable and passionate she is about this topic, so I'll leave it to her. Hi, my name is Trisha Taylor and I'm here to talk to you about the bad news and the good news why and how to teach about memory. And it's adapted from my book called Connect the Dots, The Collective Power of Relationships, Memory, and Mindset in the Classroom with Nina Dibner and illustrated by Oliver Kiviglioli. So let's begin with the why. So why teach about memory? Well, the process of learning or the process of retaining knowledge, and that is knowledge that we need to have in school, almost goes against our nature. It's effortful and it's slow, And we'd rather rely on what's already in our long-term memory than have to think hard to find up new solutions and new ideas. And that's why I believe that teaching students about the science of learning is so important. If they understand how memory actually works, they understand that these sort of effortful and slow feelings actually lead to learning. And they lead to impact. And learning about memory will, in fact, save them time in the long run. And this is a big payoff for students. So my advice when teaching about memory is to be honest, lay out the facts, and let them know that there's some bad news, but there's also some good news when it comes to memory. Okay, so we're going to start with the bad news. And the first bit of bad news we've already touched on, which is that learning requires effort. You know, researchers call this desirable difficulty, but it's a hard sell for students because students perceive effort typically as a bad thing 
or even worse, they, re- they perceive effort as actually not learning. So to put the point across to students, to show them that, you know, we, we need to put effort into something in order to remember it, I use a really simple exercise. And in fact, I use this with adults as well. So the exercise goes like this. I take a few lists of simple words, and for each list, there's a different task or different instruction. So for example, sometimes they have to circle all of the words that have a capital letter in them. Others might require more uh, deeper processing, like write a sentence with this simple word or rate it for pleasantness. Then when you give them some time to figure out which of those, which of the lists or the words in the list they recall, they inevitably recall the ones that they had to think hard about, those words that they had to, to think about a meaning of. So, for example, rating for pleasantness or writing a sentence with. So it's really powerful because almost everyone in the room will remember the same words, and it's for the same reason. As Daniel William says, memory is the residue of thought. We remember what we have to think really hard about. And this is a super important lesson that young people need to know. For older students, I take this a step further and I show them a bit of research. We look specifically at a body of research that compared um, what researchers found were the best strategies for remembering information with what students thought the best strategies were or what students actually use, right? So what they found was that um, there's, a, there's a disparity between these two things. And when you show students some low-impact strategies, they find this really interesting. So low-impact strategies are rewriting your notes, rereading your notes, and highlighting your notes. And these are things that I know students do because I survey students before I speak to them and I, they tell me they do these things, right? So this is a real reality check when you show them that actually these things have low impact, right? These things might have some impact, but they're not as much as other strategies. And this makes sense to them now because they've just done this activity where they've learned that to remember something, I need to think hard about it. And we know if we really think about it, we don't have to think hard if we're just rewriting our notes or just rereading our notes and not questioning ourselves or just highlighting words um, as an activity versus really thinking about those words. So we compare that with a high-impact strategy, which is retrieval practice. Retrieval practice is just a fancy word for quizzes and flashcards, uh, self-testing, anything where you have to you practice recalling previously learned content. And we find that those, that strategy is high-impact. And they can see now why that is a high-impact strategy. It's all starting to make sense for them. Retrieval practice requires you to really think. So that's a really important sort of two-step process. And if there's anything that you remember from this podcast or from the article, you know, that's the key thing is that one first bit of bad news is that to remember something, we need to think hard about it. And, you know, you as a teacher, you're going to have to model this. You're going to have to remind them of this, giving them think time and, you know, consistently come back to this, this language in the classroom that that's what it takes to remember information. When you give them a quiz, you remind them, I'm giving you this quiz because I know that to remember information, you need to think hard about it first. And no peeking, by the way. Always try and answer the question first. So the second bit of bad news, which is related to the first bit of bad news, is that learning takes time. So even if we might remember something, you know, immediately after we're taught it, we thought hard about it, 
Research shows that we will quickly forget it, you know, almost immediately or the next day. So most of what we interact with is quickly forgotten. So this is obviously bad news for students as well as for teachers who spend a lot of time planning lessons and making sure that students remember information. The best way to introduce this to older students is to show the learning curve graph, which you can find really easily online. And this is a, or on my website. And this is a real wow moment, you know, when you illustrate this to students with this graph, because it shows it's plotting time over retention. And it shows the first time we learn something, you know, it shoots up to the top. And then there's this quick dip right down because we quickly forget information. But then it has, you know, the next recall, the dip is a little bit less and then so on and then so on. So over time, it's showing how information is moving into our, our long-term memory and it's really becoming something that we know. Another way to illustrate this point with students is to ask them a simple question about their own memory. So, you know, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Most likely they remember. What did you have for breakfast a year ago today? Most likely they will not remember. And for this, you can make the point that, you know, we don't remember information that we only had to recall. Why would we have to recall what we had for breakfast a year ago? We wouldn't. So it's not useful. We don't remember it. But we do remember things that are important, like we might remember, you know, our, our mother's birthday. That's really important. We'll have to remember that consistently over time. And over time, we've learned to remember things like our timetables or spellings or you know, information in different content areas. And I think this is also a really great lesson for students to remember that it's okay to forget, right? That forgetting is part of remembering. Um, but we have to make sure that we come back to that information and build that into our learning. The last bit of bad news is, is related to the first two bits of bad news, which is the illusion of knowing. And the illusion of knowing just states that we're really bad judges of how much information we actually know. So sometimes if we're asked a question about, you know, about knowledge that we might know, it might seem familiar to us or we might have some sort of general idea about it. Uh, and we therefore we think we know it, but we actually don't. So there might be, you know, cues in the classroom like posters or... Uh, we might have just learned something, you know, and these things lead us to believe that we know the information when we don't. And that's why retrieval practice is so beneficial. And that's why spacing out retrieval practice or space retrieval practice is so important because it gives us that opportunity to really test whether or not we know something. So that's the bad news. Learning requires effort. Learning takes time. There's no one-stop shop. And we don't know what we know, otherwise known as the illusion of knowing. So it's time for some good news. So the first bit of good news is that pictures pack power. Our brain has two different channels for processing visual and verbal information. And these two channels work together to make connections. So if we're learning a concept and we have a picture about that concept and also words associated with it, then we can combine those two and it's easier for us to recall that information and it also gives us more room in our working memory to do other things. We should teach that really simple concept to students and it's called dual coding. We should model it in our own instruction and make it really explicit that this is what we're doing and we should look for opportunities for students to use it in their own work. So for example, drawing key vocabulary, sketching out a process, or using symbols in your notes. Interestingly, that these actual physical movements that you make when you're drawing also have cognitive benefits for our, for our memory. 
And so, and then label these images or explain them to another peer in the lesson. You know, that's in, in order to get that benefit of dual coding as well. Okay, so let's move on to our next bit of good news, which is called chunking. So chunking information is a, is a word that, it's actually a scientific word that is used to group smaller pieces of information into larger, more meaningful pieces of information that can fit into our working memory or our thinking much better and are easier to recall. So um, chunking information just means that we, you know, lump things together. So it could be by theme. It could be we teach students how to chunk by steps or parts of a process like a flow chart. And regardless of what it is, we're taking a bunch of information and we're looking for similar traits to chunk that information together in order to fit it into our working memory. And this is something, again, that you can give loads of examples of in, in real life. So when you go to the supermarket, you know, all the bread is together, all the veg is together. You know, there's a sweet aisle. And in fact, even in within that, it's chunked in different areas and different sections, you know. And that, it just makes sense, right? You would, a supermarket that was where everything was put randomly would be really difficult because you wouldn't be able to find anything and you would take forever. And so we see all of these examples, and when you start to, you know, really talk to students about it, they can see that this is really obvious. We, we use chunking all of the time, and the brain is the same way. The brain likes to chunk information. It makes information easier for us to find. And because we are chunking a bunch of information into one, it gives us more thinking space in our working memories. In the classroom, you know, you can use this, you know, again, as I mentioned before, you can use things like graphic organizers and flowcharts. You could ask students to take, you know, a topic that they know a lot about, you know, in, in science and ask them to, to, to write down everything that they know and then begin to kind of chunk it within different categories, like, you know, take vision, you know, what are the causes, effects, what are the dangers. When students are writing an essay or a report, you can help them by, you know, brainstorming all of the bits of information that you might want to include in the report and then showing them how you can categorize information, you know, almost like a, a brainstorm and then you're circling things that are in common and lumping them together and then sequencing them for them. You know, this live modeling is teaching them a metacognitive skill as well as a memory strategy called chunking. The last one I want to touch on is storytelling, you know, the age-old tradition of just telling a good story. So stories, um, you know, related to chunking are broken up into pieces, but they're very familiar pieces. So we hear stories, we know stories, we know the traditional narrative structure, the once upon a time, so there's a beginning, there's a rising action, then there's a conflict, and then there's a resolution or a happy ending or maybe even um, a cliffhanger. So stories are something that we're used to. So when you hang uh, hard-to-remember content onto a story structure and even add characters and some embellishment, it helps us to remember the information better. You know, stories also create images in our mind, and we've already said that images are really powerful. They um, appeal to our sense of, of connecting to people, so they're actually more interesting, and therefore they're more rewarding to listen to. So I would look for opportunities where students can, can use storytelling to improve their memory of, of information that may be hard to remember. In my experience, storytelling works best in subjects that don't have stories already embedded in the content. 
So you could use it in subjects like science or in geography. So in geography, you know, create a story around how rivers form or change over time or uh, create characters around urbanization, um, you know, make their, add a conflict to it. In science, you could do loads of things. Photosynthesis, um, the water cycle, or how a star is born. There are loads of possibilities with this strategy. Okay, so there are a lot of other ways that we can teach students about memory, but that's a bit of a, a snapshot um, and a way to frame it, you know, frame it in the good news and in the bad news because there is a bit of each. But I would say that, you know, when you are, when we are as educators teaching young people how to be more efficient with their learning, how to be more efficient with their memories, I mean, that's really empowering. And I would, I, I suggest that at the end of the day, it's all good news. If you'd like to learn more ideas and the research to back it up, please get a hold of Connect the Dots, the collective power of relationships, memory, and mindset in the classroom. And again, my name is Trisha Taylor, and thanks so much for listening. Bye. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. If you found Trisha's contribution interesting, then get a hold of a copy of her book, Connecting the Dots. I'm going to be featuring the book at the end of May. It would be great to have contributions from people that have read the book as a result of hearing this episode. I'm really pleased to be introducing the first reader contribution to this episode, and that's from Kelly Ashley, who reflects on Trisha's article. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Charter College and we'll connect you with the experts through our research, CPD we offer, networks, webinars and events, and our brilliant CPD packs, which are ready-to-go staff training sessions. Hello, my name is Kelly Ashley. I'm a primary English specialist and consultant based out of North Yorkshire, and I'm the author of Word Power, Amplifying Vocabulary Instruction, which was released September 2019. I've been a member of the Chartered College of Teaching since 2017, and you can find me on Twitter at KAshleyEnglish. I'm really pleased to share some reflections on the spring 2020 issue of Impact, Cognition and Learning. And in particular, I'd like to reflect on the fantastic article by Tricia Taylor, The Bad News and the Good News, Why and How to Teach About Memory. This is a really useful article for opening up a dialogue with your students about how memory works and also how we can get the best out of our learning experiences in the classroom. There were three key takeaways for myself, specifically with my keen interest in language acquisition and vocabulary development. So the first was when Tricia was talking about the fact that learning takes time. And she mentioned specifically the idea of the forgetting curve, which was introduced to us by Ebbinghaus, and the fact that we need to forget in order to strengthen our memory. This was one of the key points in the bad news section of her article. This is something that's really important when we're thinking about strengthening long-term memory with our pupils and how, especially with regard to vocabulary development, we give time to introduce new words and allow those words to be almost forgotten in order to retrieve them at a later date and strengthen their presence within our word hoard. So to to demonstrate this, let's think about a word in the text The Storm Whale by Benji Davies, which was published by Simon & Schuster in 2013. In the book, one of the sentences reads, one night a great storm had raged around their house. 
Now, in the book, it's talking about a little boy, Noi. He lives with his dad and six cats by the sea. And there's a storm that rages near their house and he finds in the morning the storm whale that is washed, uh, washed upon the shore. And this, the book is about how Noi cares for the storm whale and it's also specifically about his relationship with his father. But back to the use of the word raged in that sentence, how would we help children to actually build their knowledge of that word in context. And in my word power approach, I use the terminology of recharging. So we want them to explore what does the word raged mean in this context? So what would a great storm, a raging storm look like, sound like, feel like? And in order to strengthen this memory over time, we would want to recharge this by perhaps getting them to think of the word rage in another context. Um, let's think of a person who's in a rage. Is that the same or is that different? And how would I then provide opportunities in the classroom to use the word rage when they're speaking, when they're writing, to further secure that in long-term memory? So the first point was this idea around the importance of forgetting, which was really relevant for my particular interest in vocabulary. The second part was when Tricia Taylor talks about the idea that pictures pack power and she talks of the importance of dual coding and also use of drawing to help with retention. So back to the word rage and raging storm, how would we draw a raging storm? What would we see in that image? What would be different if we were to draw a raging lion or even a raging person? How would a raging toddler look or sound different than a raging adult? So it's thinking about helping them to draw and to make connections to deepen and strengthen that understanding of that word and to build a stronger mental image. The third point that was really really stood out for me in this article was when Trisha was talking about chunking. So she was saying about the importance of building strong memory by grouping smaller pieces of information together into larger, more manageable pieces. And this links really closely to building a strong schema of a new idea or a word. So if I'm developing an understanding of the word raged, I might think about a raging storm. I might visualize in my mind dark skies, howling wind, crashing waves. I might, on the other hand, think of a raging person, think about what they look like. They might have a red face or they might be shaking their fists. They might have wide eyes. And within that schema of the word raging, I would then more easily be able to associate words like stormy, violent, strong, wild, furious, or um, perhaps angry. So building that idea of chunking helps with kind of semantically grouping ideas and language and helping to build stronger associations with words over time. So in conclusion, in the article, Tricia talks about the importance of building stories with words. And she says in the article, you know, everyone loves a story. And I think that's true, especially with regard to vocabulary development. So takeaways in the classroom, how are we helping children to, to build these stories with words, to build these strong associations and schema? And in the end, I love her final sentence there, you know, it's all good news. So if we can learn to talk to children about building strong memory in the classroom, at the end of the day, it's all going to be good news. You're listening to From Page to Practice. 
Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Moving back to our author contributions now, we hear from Jonathan Firth about teacher reflections. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Chartered College and we'll connect you with the experts through our research, CPD we offer, networks, webinars and events, and our brilliant CPD packs, which are ready to go staff training sessions. Hello, my name is Jonathan Firth. I'm a teaching fellow at the University of Strathclyde. Uh, My background is as a school psychology teacher And now my main role is working with new teachers on a variety of programmes, especially our PGDE. Um, And mainly I work with secondary, but also with some primary teachers as well. Um, I also spend a lot of time supporting practising teachers who are engaging with research in their classrooms in some way. For example, by doing a practitioner inquiry project. The article I wrote recently for Impact was called Teacher Classroom Reflections, Tackling Flawed Metacognition and Memory. Now, the main thing that stimulated the article was the common advice given to teachers to reflect on their own lessons and on their practice. I agree that reflection is important, but the advice given at times seemed to me too simplistic. Um, And the reason for that is there are a lot of areas where we know that people's reflections are simply not accurate and that can apply both to pupils and to teachers. For example, pupils often misjudge their own learning or fail to recognise effective study strategies. And the same kind of problems can apply to teachers. Um, memory is complex and we often don't intuitively understand how memory works and when we're going to remember things. Um, and we don't recognise um, a lot of the time when we've misremembered something as well. So in the article, I focus on two issues in particular both of which draw on cognitive psychology. One is the evidence on flawed metacognition when it comes to learning, and in particular the difference between performance and learning. Teachers and learners alike often mistake performance for learning. They think because somebody is able to do something successfully in the short term, for example, within a particular lesson, they're getting answers correct, that that means that learning has been achieved and they fail to account for forgetting. The other is the research into eyewitness memory. There's a lot of research that suggests that eyewitnesses are often biased and flawed when they report something they've seen. Though for the most part, this hasn't really been applied to education. For example, um, in the forensic psychology field, a witness to a crime may say something in court and it may turn out later that their statement is quite different from what actually happened. But they've no intention to lie, they're just misremembering and unaware that they made a mistake. So it struck me that the same issues may well apply when it comes to teachers reflecting on their own practice and mentors or senior leaders um, who have witnessed a teacher's lesson, perhaps misremembering it, um, or either the, the observer or the teacher themselves perhaps thinking that learning has happened when in fact it's really just short-term performance that we can see during the lesson. So the main takeaways from the article are really that it would be a good idea to have some kind of structure for a lesson observation um, or for an independent reflection. It would be helpful if possible to record the lesson in some way, though that's not always practical. It would certainly be helpful to compare what happened in a lesson to a professional development plan, so the reflection could focus on a specific target or set of targets rather than being a general subjective um, evaluation of the lesson. And I think more broadly, it would be very helpful if all professionals in education could be aware of some of these issues and discuss 
um, and um, comment on some of the problems that lie um, in trying to gauge whether learning has happened and uh, some of the biases that are likely to occur when we reflect. Even just being aware of these flaws is probably half the battle a lot of the time. Um, but all too often I think we're going to assume that our uh, reflection is actually accurate and that we're remembering things correctly. Our thoughts and memories are flawed and fallible in general as part of what makes us human. I think the, the same principles really apply to teachers who are finding and engaging with research independently. Um, that's something I discuss in my recent book, um, A Teacher's Guide to Research, published by Routledge last year. Um, as I discuss in the book, especially in the first few chapters, a key aspect of applying evidence to practice involves a process of finding appropriate research, analysing it, uh, using it as the basis of a change and evaluating uh, the change. But we have to recognise that our assessment is likely to be biased. Um, many features of research methodology are basically designed to overcome these kind of biases. So researchers try to find a fair baseline comparison. They try to identify any factors that could cause a change other than the thing that we are, um, the intervention that we're applying. And research methodology also um, has a set of guidelines about research ethics that would also be useful when we are um, trying interventions out with real pupils. So even though clearly not every teacher is going to have a background research methodology, um, I think we can apply many of the same principles if we want our practice to be evidence-informed. And essentially, I think that would be a good thing for teachers, for the professionalism, um, and for the pupils as well. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. I thought it was really interesting to hear about something slightly different there, focusing on teachers' own learning and reflections. I especially like the way he discusses reflection in relation to a professional development plan and being aware of our own biases. Jonathan also mentions his own book. Maybe that's another one I should be checking out to add to the schedule. Our last author contribution comes from Gethin Jones with a focus on misconceptions. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Chartered College and help us celebrate the profession to build value and trust amongst the education community and share your voice to shape your profession. Hello, my name is Gethin Jones. I'm Director of Physics at Harris City Academy, Crystal Palace. And recently I wrote a piece, a teacher reflection in the spring 2020 edition of Impact called Misconceptions, P-Prims and Bridging Analogies in Physics Teaching. Now, I think the idea of a student misconception is very familiar to everyone. Um, there's a vast body of research on this in uh, science teaching on student misconceptions in science, which dates back to the best of my personal knowledge to the early 1990s and especially uh, to Rosalind Driver's brilliant, brilliant book, Making Sense of Secondary Science, which was published in 1994. Now, uh, many teachers, myself included, when we read this thought, oh, everything would be sorted once we knew about student misconceptions, and that all we had to do was um, draw out what misconceptions the student held, um, show them where they were mistaken, and the misconceptions would then be rejected by the students and there'd be a quantum leap in student understanding of science. Uh, 
Now, I think the misconceptions movement undoubtedly improved a lot of things about science teaching and made a lot of us better teachers, I believe. However, it wasn't the panacea that many of us expected it to be. What we found was the idea of um, eliciting student misconceptions, of actually stating them, sometimes had the very unexpected effect of making them stronger rather than weaker. Now, this prompted a period of reflection and head-scratching, at least for me, and I believe many other researchers. So um, the thought was, where did we where do we go from here? Now, a possible way forward, I think, was mapped out by Andrea Di Sessa. And what he said was that um, he put forward what he called the knowledge in pieces model, the idea that um, knowledge, human knowledge, is not part of a, a coherent rational framework. Instead, it exists in a fairly haphazard way with sometimes haphazard links between different items of knowledge. One way in which we link and apply knowledge, he argued, is through the idea of a phenomenological primitive, or P-prim for short. One P-prim he identified was the idea that if um, two objects are close, then they affect each other more strongly than if the two objects are further apart. Now, this is a perfectly rational P-prim, and it can be applied correctly to a vast range of circumstances. So, if you want to warm yourself by a fire, you stand closer to the fire. That seems obvious. However, it can be misapplied. So, students, for example, know that the Earth's orbit is elliptical. So, their thought is that seasons occur, that we have summer when the Earth is closer to the sun, and we have winter when it's further away from the sun. Now, although this sounds perfectly natural, it's not, in fact, the case. Um, so, um, one of the um, reasons why this isn't the case is the seasons are actu actually caused by the axial tilt of the Earth, and it has nothing to do with the varying distance of the Earth from the Sun. And although the Earth's orbit around the Sun is elliptical, it's actually not very elliptical. It's um, pretty close to being a nearly perfect circle, so it alters by a very, very, very small percentage. So that doesn't really affect the weather that much, and it certainly doesn't um, cause the seasons. So, um, where do we go from here? Um, if we understand P-primes, can we um, uh, develop their use? Can we use it to teach science? And um, in my own field, can I use it to teach uh, physics better? Well, actually, I think we can. Um, I've been very influenced by the work of David Hammer and his idea that instead of confronting the um, misconceptions head-on, which can sometimes be counterproductive, what we should do instead is aim to um, develop student intuitions and refine rather than replace um, knowledge. And one way you, you can do this is by changing the framework. So, for example, um, when we're talking about heat transfer and radiation, um, 
it makes perfect sense to a lot of people that um, a dark colored object, a black colored object is better at absorbing electromagnetic radiation than a light colored object. So for example, if you go out into bright sunlight wearing a dark t-shirt, you get warmer than if you go out into bright sunlight wearing a um, light colored t-shirt. Now, this sounds all fine and good, but then we ask students to accept the notion that not only is a black object uh, good at absorbing electromagnetic radiation, it's also much better than a light-colored object at emitting um, light-colored, uh, sorry, um, electromagnetic radiation. So how does this work? How can we get students um, to understand this idea? Well, to my mind, part of the problem is that um, we've been setting up a P-prim in our previous teaching that causes students to misunderstand this. So, for example, um, if we've been doing heat transfer and we talk about conductors and we say, well, obviously, a poor conductor is a good insulator and equally a poor insulator is a good conductor of thermal energy. Now this is actually true but then students apply this knowledge and they automatically assume without being told they just automatically assume a poor emitter of um, electromagnetic radiation will be a poor absorber of heat radiation. Nope, I got that wrong. Correction, I think I got that wrong. A poor emitter of electromagnetic radiation would be a good absorber of electromagnetic radiation, when in fact the converse is the case. Um, one suggestion that's been put forward is that if we use bridging analogies, we can kind of set up the P-prim or the way of thinking that students will actually adopt. So it's been suggested that, for example, if we're going to teach um, how different colored surfaces absorb electromagnetic radiation, we use a bridging analogy to kind of influence the framework that students will use to think about these issues. So for example, um, you might ask a student, um, you know, does a net pole player have to be good at both uh, catching and throwing the ball? And that seems to naturally set up uh, the framework for thinking about the absorption and emission of electromagnetic radiation in the correct way. Now, I think the idea of a bridging analogy is a really, really interesting way of teaching. And I'm developing that. Um, I've been influenced by the work of um, that I've come across using using the uh, Chartered College of Teaching's um, research database. And I came across a really interesting piece by Ann Elms, which is called Using Analogy to Cue and Strengthen Scientifically Correct Conceptions. And the example I just used is from her work. And I think, um, to my mind at least, it's a really, really interesting way forward that I think has a lot of potential. And uh, I wrote this piece essentially to um, 
make my own thinking more coherent on the matter and also to uh, publicize and hopefully influence this way of thinking about student um, science education and um, developing students thinking and essentially we're just engaged in the search of trying to um, make science education better and I think this is one possible way forward and I hope um, readers agree. Thank you. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. Hopefully there was something for everyone to take away there, even if you're not a science teacher. I think that's the beauty of the Impact Journal and hopefully also this podcast, to hear and read some subject-specific articles and consider how these can apply to our own contexts. We've got three more contributions now, all from readers of this issue of the Impact Journal. The first of the three is Victoria Pendry, and here she is. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Chartered College and we'll support you to deliver CPD for you and your colleagues, improve teaching and learning and student outcomes, and reduce workload by engaging with the latest research of what works and why. Hello. My name is Vicky Pendry and I'm a director of the Curriculum Foundation. We are a not-for-profit UK-based foundation providing curriculum-related support, advice and guidance. We work with schools, school systems, government organisations and ministries worldwide. Our vision is for a world-class curriculum for every learner. Where schools do not necessarily have the best curriculum in the world, but their curriculum is certainly the best for the world. We believe that every child should leave school with the confidence, ability and desire to make the world a better place. I'm delighted to contribute to this podcast from Page to Practice to talk about an article in the Chartered College of Teaching's magazine, Impact Issue 8. I'd like to talk about Bloom's taxonomy. Kristen Bockover and Ryan Campbell suggest that the cognitive revolution and the increased focus on evidence-based practice that has swept through the profession in the recent years has brought about some very positive outcomes. But they suggest that in our rush to embrace the modern, we'd be wise to remember that some of these new ideas have some very old roots. Bockover and Campbell, in their article, suggest that whilst there is such a current interest in mastery learning, it would be sensible to return to one of the classics of educational literature, Bloom's Taxonomy. In their article, they describe the four types of knowledge which Bloom's references in his taxonomy. Factual, conceptual, procedural and metacognitive. In the classroom, it's wise for teachers to consider these four different types of knowledge as they plan and prepare different activities for children to take part in. Indeed, in defining curriculum aims, it's useful as a whole school to talk about what we mean by knowledge. And by referring to Bloom's taxonomy, we can uncover some useful descriptions and definitions of what we mean by knowledge. But when we look at Bloom's taxonomy, it's helpful to remember that in his work, he talked about the cognitive domain, the psychomotor domain and the affective domain. 
And it is often the cognitive domain which remains central to our discussions when we're talking about knowledge and learning. But to look at the effective domain is also a useful aspect of helping children learn and develop various competencies that allow them to be effective global citizens. The effective domain talks about feelings, perceptions, motivations, attitudes and interests and that there are different levels of the effective domain, starting with receiving and moving on to responding, valuing, organisational and characterisation. Bockover and Campbell, in their article, usefully compare and combine the four knowledge dimensions and the six cognitive process dimensions as outlined by Bloom. It's useful at this point, though, to refer to Norman Webb, who was writing about the depth or complexity of knowledge in 1977. Webb talks about four levels of knowledge, recall and reproduction, moving up to basic application skills and concepts, then strategic thinking, and finally, extended thinking and thinking processes. It's useful to use Bloom's taxonomy to design and guide activities so that we can scaffold learning about content, and we can use some of the verbs associated with Bloom's taxonomy to help us write learning objectives for different tasks. But we can use Webb's depth of knowledge as a guide for developing skills and encouraging deeper thinking and learning. Usefully, in 2005, Dr Karen Hess created a cognitive rigour matrix. And this enables us to compare and synthesise what Blooms was saying about types of thinking with ideas from Norman Webb about depth of knowledge. And when we combine types of thinking and depth of knowledge, we create learning experiences for children in the classroom aimed at helping them to develop skills for lifelong learning. So in thinking about different levels of the effective domain, can we blend that with different levels within the cognitive domain? Can we help children to organise what they learn and value what they learn so that they're able to reach those higher level thinking skills that Bloom's describes, such as creating, evaluating and analysing? We know that if children are more involved in their learning and they're more committed to their learning, then they're likely to be increasingly intrinsically motivated. So in conclusion, and in response to the article from Bockover and Campbell, I'd agree, of course, that it's useful to look back to some research, in this case from Benjamin Blooms in 1956. But if we are indeed to revive Blooms, then we need to think critically and creatively ourselves about what Blooms is presenting us with. He gives us a learning framework. He describes types of thinking. But we need to be careful that when we consider creativity, for example, we remember that it is indeed a goal in itself, but it's also a tool for learning. So in our classrooms, we need to prepare learning experiences for children that enable them to develop all of those different types of thinkings, where one is not necessarily more important than another, but it is certainly more complex. When we think about Blooms, we also need to remember that he was championing the cognitive, psychomotor and affective domain. And it's essential that as we strive to help children develop different types of thinking, we also think about how we can enable them to develop 
attitudes, interests, perceptions, so that they can be more motivated and indeed intrinsically motivated to learn about new things in different ways. Finally, if we remember the matrix that Hess provides us with, we can think about the depth of knowledge that Norman Webb was promoting in 1977. And when we combine types of thinking and a depth of knowledge, then we should be able to create a topic, a theme, a unit of work that presents to our learners relevant, challenging and diverse learning experiences that will, we hope, enable them to leave school with the confidence, ability and desire to make the world a better place. Thank you. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag pagepracticepodcast. An interesting look there at an article on something we are all familiar with but seen in a different way. The next teacher we're going to hear from is Darren Leslie, who is the host of the Becoming Educated podcast. I found Darren's podcast episode so far to be really interesting, and it's given me the chance to hear from and about a range of people that I would not otherwise be familiar with. I thoroughly recommend that you subscribe to the Becoming Educated podcast. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Chartered College and we'll connect you with the experts through our research, CPD we offer, networks, webinars and events, and our brilliant CPD packs, which are ready-to-go staff training sessions. Hello, my name is Darren Leslie. I am a teacher of physical education and also the principal teacher of learning and teaching in a school in Clackmannanshire, Scotland. I also host the Becoming Educated podcast. I recently joined the Chartered College of Teaching. Being from Scotland, it is not something that's very much promoted here, but I love the work that they do and I was delighted to receive the most recent copy of Impact. There are two articles that have really resonated with me and I've taken forward in both my own classroom practice and also plan to take forward in my work with regards to my whole school remit on learning and teaching. The first one I would like to talk about is an article by Matt Corby and Claire Badger of the Godolphin and Latimer School. Their article, Improving Metacognition Through Explicit Instruction of Learning Strategies, really got me thinking about how I can use some of the learning that I've done in my own time to improve my classroom practice and how that could help the learners. I've recently, over the past six months, really started to invest some time into educational research and after attending a research ed event, I really look closely at how I can use what I'm learning in the classroom. The work of the learning scientists and the six principles of effective learning, so the six strategies of effective learning that they have produced in 2018 is one area that I have taken forward in my own practice. However, what I haven't done is I haven't been making that explicit with the young people. After reading the piece by Matt Corby and Claire Badger, where they looked at making metacognition more explicit by explicitly teaching learners in their classrooms the six strategies through direct instruction, and then evaluated the impact that had on their learning, with the goal to try and make learners more self-regulating. What I've done 
recently with my senior class is I have been far more explicit and direct in my instruction of the effective learning strategies. I have taken them one by one and shared how to implement them with their own learning and their own revision. And I've also used them in the classroom to help children have a better understanding. My next step with this would be to push it through with my other classes, be more explicit and direct with the instruction of what each of the strategies are. For example, this is retrieval practice or this is dual coding and this is how we're doing it today with the hope that the children then can apply that on their own with their own revision. The second one that really resonated with me was by Liz Barrett, who is the lead, lead associate for the Transform Trust in Nottingham and Derby. Her article, The Explicit Use and Modelling of Cognitive Science and Staff Development, really hit home for me. In my role as the Principal Teacher of Learning and Teaching, I have a whole school remit to try and improve classroom practice. I have been looking at how I can use research to really enhance the learning experiences of young people through taking the staff through a series of professional learning activities. After reading the article, I contacted Liz about how she did that and how she got there. She shared with me that she introduced a lot of the research to her staff, but then gave the staff a large amount of time to then fully understand it practice it and adopt it in their classrooms. That is a pr an approach that I plan to take with my in my own school where I'm going to share bit by bit the research in cognitive science and how that can be applied in classroom practice with each and every member of staff. And over time, I'm then going to work with staff individually and in groups to really see if they have understood the principles and are going to, and are able, through my support, to apply the principles of cognitive science in their own classroom and with their learning episodes and embed them fully into their curriculum. I look forward to seeing how I can take that forward and I also would like to thank Liz for her time in discussing this with me as I contacted her pretty much immediately after I read the article. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. One of the articles Darren picked out was about making strategies that we are using explicit to our students. I find this really interesting and something I plan to do more. The second article relates to doing this with staff, which also sounds particularly useful. Our final listener contribution today comes from John Tate. Hello, my name is John Tate. I'm Deputy Head Teacher and Director of Acklam Grange Teaching School here in Middlesbrough, up in the northeast of England. And I'm also an education author for Bloomsbury. Now, this month I've been looking at the Chartered College of Teaching Impact Journal and the article specifically written by Rob Corr entitled Does Research on Retrieval Practice Translate into Classroom Practice? Now, here at Acklam Grange, retrieval practice is something that we have strategically implemented across the whole school this year. And we've wanted to make sure that in most, if not all, lessons, all of our teachers are using some form of retrieval practice at some point in the lesson. Now, this is really important to us because we, what we want to do is, knowing the, um, the evidence on, on, on memory and on recall, we want to make sure we are constantly uh, activating the prior knowledge of our students and making sure that they have not only time to forget that information, but then the opportunity to actually recall that information because as we know, uh, as Rob knows, and as all the uh, the um, 
the, uh, the, the research is, is telling us is that actually the act of actually uh, retrieving that information helps just to strengthen the memory itself. So that's really, really important for us as a school. Um, and it's interesting reading the article that, uh, you know, Rob's talking about, you know, how, you know, all the, the studies are actually saying that it really works um, and, and, and or certainly in the, in, in the trials that they've done, you know, they, they've seen kind of quite significant improvements in this, albeit with some of them in kind of laboratory, uh, laboratory settings. But we know that actually from a, from, a, from a science point of view that actually, you know, that this does help to strengthen the memory. What's interesting though is that, is that as, as Rob quite, quite rightly points out in the article, um, that, that it, it might just be that, yes, it's great, but it's about actually how we're doing it. And he, uh, what I think is really nice is that he relates to what Steve Higgins calls the banana-rama principle. So it ain't what you do, it's the way that you do it. And I think that that's really true for us as a school and for all of our schools, that it's, 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 it's not just a, an off-the-shelf um, solution that's going to actually solve all of our problems as schools, is that if we just plug retrieval practice into all of our lessons, then our students are going to actually have improved outcomes and it's going to solve all our problems. It's actually how we're going to do it, what we're going to use it with, when we're going to use it. And it's all the little uh, intricacies of, of, of teaching that um, as classroom practitioners um, and as senior leaders, we need to work out to work out how the best, uh, you know, how we can do it the best, should I say. Um, for us, what that looks like is that we're, we're probably starting to use it more at the start of lessons for, let's say, start of activities, where we're actually um, you're getting students to recall prior knowledge, potentially as well interleaving different, uh, different topics as well, um, strategically interleaving as well. So it's not just always about what happened last lesson, but it might be last lesson, last topic, last month. Um, and starting to increase the uh, you know the the, the the kind of level of desirable difficulties um, by you know by, by stretching their memory even further, um, but it's also interesting that that. Rob talks about the, f the fact that, you know, it might just be that, and we, we really don't know this yet because there haven't been enough research conducted on this, but it might just be that retrieval practice is great, but it's great for that just kind of basic factual recall. Um, and, it, and it doesn't necessarily help with more um, higher order, uh, complex problem solving. Um, I suppose what I, what I would say to that and what, what our response is to school is that you need to know things to know more things. So actually by having that base knowledge, by being able to, uh, to recall lots of facts and have that general sound uh, knowledge of a topic lets you then progress on to the, uh, to the harder stuff, so to speak, and to, uh, to solve those complex problems and to actually uh, deal with uh, you know, more difficult situations because you've got that base knowledge. If you haven't got that base knowledge to start with, then actually you're not going to be able to actually access the, um, you know, those higher thinking skills because we then get into, um, as, as we know if you've read the research, we get into a, a, a situation of cognitive overload where we're, we're spending too much of our time and effort actually trying to recall that information, trying to learn it, trying to understand it. So therefore, we've not got enough of our uh, our um, our working memory available to do the harder things with. So I think it, it is really important for us as a school. But I do completely agree that it, it, it's it's about how you do it and, and, and when you do it. Because there's also a danger that we slip into the fact that everything becomes about retrieval, and uh, we're retrieving so much prior information that we haven't got enough time left to actually teach the new content uh, that our students need to do. So it's about very careful application, understanding what retrieval practice is, what it isn't, uh, why it's beneficial, uh, when to plug it in, when not to plug it into your lessons, um, and, and to make sure that you understand that it isn't going to solve all of, your, all of your problems in one go, but that it is, in my opinion and in our opinion as a school, 
um, a necessary part of the jigsaw uh, of that science of learning to make sure that we have that base knowledge. We can re we can call on that information uh, almost automatically because because we've been recalling it all the time, so it's in our memory, and therefore we are um, we are leaving enough of our working memory free uh, to do other things with. Uh, hence, you know, solve those solve a lot of those uh, harder to understand uh, complex problems because we're not in a state of cognitive overload because we've been able to recall that information quite easily. So that's how it's working for us. And certainly uh, in all of our lessons, all of our students are experiencing that at the moment uh, and we're getting great results from it. Thanks, John, for a look there at retrieval practice and whole school applications, as well as considering the impact of this. What I've enjoyed most about today's episode is that every contributor was found via Twitter. I just looked for tweets mentioning the journal and contacted readers asking if they wanted to talk about what they'd read. I didn't even think they all knew this podcast existed before, but hopefully now they're all subscribed. You're listening to From Page to Practice, a Chartered College Impact Journal special. Join the Chartered College and we'll support you to deliver CPD for you and your colleagues, improve teaching and learning and student outcomes, and reduce workload by engaging with the latest research of what works and why. Once again, I'd like to say a massive thank you to everyone that has contributed today. I really appreciate it and I know everyone listening will do too. Coming up on From Page to Practice, we have stopped talking about wellbeing by Kat Howard. I'll be looking on Twitter for people to contribute, but it would be even better to have some volunteers come forward. I myself am taking the book uh, as reading for the plane journey when I take 27 year 10s to Spain this week. Uh, following that, I'll be covering Sarah Mullins' What They Didn't Teach Me on my PGCE. If you'd like to contribute to either of these, then tweet me at bexn91 or contact me via my website. And the address is coming up in the outro of this podcast. Finally, all that's left to say is please let me know what you've thought of this episode. Tweet about it using hashtag page practice podcast and share it with your colleagues. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to From Page to Practice. Don't forget to join in the conversation using hashtag page practice podcast. Alternatively, to suggest a book or article or volunteer to contribute to an episode, visit learninglinguist.co.uk forward slash page practice podcast thanks go to kevin mcleod of incomtech.com for use of the tracks cheery monday and fuzzball parade which are licensed under creative commons <laughs>